This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We understand that some of our opinions will not be shared with many people and hope you can still bear with us in order to hear amazing Wisconsin-based stories. We are not licensed therapists or able to give legal advice by any means. Our show notes will provide all of our source materials included for each episode. Now Now on on to to the the show. Welcome back to All the Sins of Wisconsin. I'm Fallon, and I am here with Mims. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm glad we're recording. I'm glad to see you today. Oh, we always you. have like great conversations before we record. Yeah, we definitely are. Like therapy for the week. It is. <laughs> I, it feels really good to just like word vomit all over you. Yep, same. <laughs> that was a gross image. <laughs> That sounds like something that would happen in ridiculousness. <laughs> um, Have any true crime news you want to discuss today? Yeah, let's discuss Lydia Nini Camarana from Milwaukee, a 23-year-old, and I'm getting this all from uh, the local news of TMJ for Milwaukee. Uh, she went on a date with this guy um, and that she met through Facebook. Um, he, She's claiming that he told her to get out of the car after she basically said she wanted to go home after the date. Um, they were drinking, they were doing some cocaine it seems like. Uh, and then she got upset so she started stabbing him in the vehicle and um... I don't know how she got a hold of the vehicle itself, but she ended up running him over three to four times and then kicking him in the head. Um, And it just seems pretty gruesome to me. So that just happened about four days ago. Yeah, it sounds gruesome and horrible Mm -hmm. and so unnecessary because you didn't want to walk. Right. You you weren't in danger once you got out. If you were in danger, I don't think she was. Yeah, she claims that she he got aggressive with her, and then she started stabbing him. But it's like, why would you continue to run him over, like back up, follow him, run him over again and again, and then yeah, just get out, kick the shit out of him, and then just dip out with his car. Yeah, if he wanted you to get out, just get out. And I would have flipped call him an off. Uber. Yeah, flipped him off and like you asshole, and then just fucking left. I mean, yeah, exactly. It's... I think we've all been in situations that with like when you're dating, you yeah. meet people oh, yeah. that you don't really like or you know you don't click with, and yeah. sometimes men get an attitude about it. Yeah, but I've never really thought about running. Away. No, especially after one date. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like. I had an ex that I definitely wanted to run over, but it was definitely provoked. I never did it. <laughs> Probably should have, but I never did it. Um, but this is this was like their first encounter, so yeah. I definitely don't understand that. No. So she was found guilty. Um, she could spend the rest of her life in prison, um, and she is being held on a hundred thousand dollar cash bond. Um, and her preliminary hearing is next Thursday, is what it says. Yeah. So they're moving through the case pretty fast. Yeah, it seems like it. 
Yeah. So, I mean, there's numerous witnesses. and. Yep, that's what it said, too. Yeah, and she had the car at right. her house. Right. So, yeah, insanity. There's... I feel like everybody's lost their minds lately. Yeah, everybody's very unhinged. Yeah. It's kind of scary. It is very scary. Like, nobody gives a fuck anymore. I know. It's hard to live in a world where... Before, people had, like, maybe not everybody, but... A lot of people like stuck by the rules and they were like, all right, I got consequences. But I feel like now it's more and more like, fuck this. I'm just going to do whatever I want. Yeah. And I don't, I don't like that mentality. <laughs> no, me either. Especially from like bad people. Mm, yeah. Because if people let us do whatever the fuck we wanted, we would do this, eat food. Yeah. <laughs> I would relax. just, I think what I would do is just not ever work a day in my life and just lizard lounge all day and yes. have like 30 dogs. Yeah. My my latest escape fantasy is like a mountain or not a mountain, a cabin at the bottom of a mountain by a river mm. where I can just read all day. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I love that. I just want to read. Do nothing. Yeah. I would just <laughs> watch movies all day. Yeah. <laughs> In my imaginary place, I don't have power. <laughs> no. Right? Yeah. You could do anything in your imaginary escape world and you're just reading a book. Yeah. <laughs> but I love it. It sounds so calm and serene. and That's on doing too many things. <laughs> <laughs> that my fantasy is just reading. I don't even need power. It's just the fireplace because I get cold. <laughs> oh, that would be very nice. I, I like it, though. I can vibe with that. Yeah. I could have pets. But well, no people. Good. Yeah, no people, please. Yeah. I'm going to do that one day. Do yeah, I highly encourage it. Yeah. Okay, I got. Did you see that Derek Chauvin? If people don't know who that is, that's the person that killed George Floyd. He pled guilty to his federal charges. Um, you we talked about it. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I I was very enthused when you said that. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah, I was surprised. Yeah, I mean. If people don't know, if you don't plead guilty to federal charges, you're still going to get convicted. And then they have, like, certain sentencing guidelines and not accepting responsibility adds on time. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, so the feds ha are not like Wisconsin where the judge is like, I think you should go for 10 years. Mm -hmm. They have very set guidelines, like, and they have a point system, so you get points for this points for that you can get points taken away for like good behaviors points added for bad behaviors so one of the bad behaviors would be not accepting responsibility for your actions wow and you get additional time when it comes to sentencing for that how did i not know this i feel like not many people know this how would you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know i guess people don't really talk about that yeah unless you've had to like go through that go through a federal case yeah yeah Interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad. I hope he goes to prison for a fucking ever. Mm -hmm. And that other, the officer, Kim Potter, the one that yelled, taser, 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 and shot the man in Minnesota. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's on trial right now. I seen that. Yeah, I was just, um, where was I? I seen it, like, just as a blip where they were talking about, they were asking her, so you want to testify? 
mm-hmm. about this. And she's like, yep, I'll testify. And it was almost in the the sense of, are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's definitely the sense e- that it was. It, yep. Like, yep. You have nothing good to say for yourself. Yeah. No, I don't know how you can mistake a taser for a gun. I thought that's why you went through. After 26 years as a police officer. Yeah. This was not her first week. No, no, there's no excuse. She claims to have never pulled her taser or her gun before this incident. Ever, ever? Ever, ever. I don't know if that's true. That's what she testified to. That can't to. be true. And the, okay, you know I what mean, it is. I could never mistake one for the other. And I just can't imagine never pulling your taser. Unless, unless that's like an APD thing that they just really like to pull their tasers. I see cops pull their tasers constantly. Like, yeah. somebody gets tased at the high school every other day. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Wow, I did not know this was going on. That so people unaware. weren't getting tased when you were in high school. Never, ever. No, I, I've never seen a tase situation. Oh yeah, and I I've gotten in a fight the... at when I was in high school. Yeah, I don't know if it's just the current resource officer or it, it, yeah, it might be. I've, I have might heard have some changed. Things, so that yeah. could be. Yeah, I definitely never had. I just seen thought that. that was just like what they did. No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no and there was times where it was warranted so i was it warranted when you were fighting hmm. were you out of control i was out of, <laughs> i was like i don't remember half of it i um got into it with another girl and we were like just brawling in the middle of the hallway and i think i accidentally hit our math teacher who we were going <laughs> to go into the classroom but she's talking mad shit and i've had enough yeah. And all I remember is like throwing her against the locker and just like slamming and slamming and slamming. <laughs> and this bitch just kept pulling out my hair. Oh my and God. I hate when women do that. <laughs> Me too. It's like, okay, can I just make a rule amongst all women that <laughs> hair is just off limits? Because shit, that hurts. Mm-hmm. And my hair was all over the, the hallway. All over. And if they haven't looked at our pictures, you have, like, long, gorgeous, thick, beautiful hair. Yeah. It's quite offensive if you do that. It is. <laughs> if you can't fight, stop talking shit. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I just... So, these people think... Thought it was, like, a good idea to sit us in a room right after the fight. <laughs> where it was, you know, just, like... The principal's office, so not very big. Right. We're sitting across from each other, just still talking shit. I'm like, listen, I don't care that anybody's here. I will still fight you and hit you with the chair. (laughs) I'm I'm already going down. Like, (laughs) I might as well just keep swinging. So, yeah, I got suspended. Hmm. It's hard to imagine you being like that. Oh, man, my high school I days. I was the same way in high school. But I usually, like, fitted in a ducked off corner. Oh, no. I was way out in the open. Like, there was no hiding it. And it was funny <laughs> because my friend to this day was like, I got front row seat. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I like that that other side of you. Yeah. I'm feisty. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What else you got? Is that it? I think that's all I have. I guess we should address this. If we have parents listening, I'm sure they've heard about the TikTok trend, the National Day of Violence. Which is the stupidest, most ludicrous thing I've ever heard. I don't know why that's a thing. 
I do not know either, but I I heard a lot of parents say they hadn't seen the video. Their kids hadn't seen any videos regarding it, so they didn't really understand how, like, where this information was coming from. So I asked my middle schoolers, and they said one of their friends did see a video about it yesterday, and she was, like, went crying to a teacher and showed them the video. So there was actually videos. It wasn't, like, a made-up rumor to make kids stay home today. So is there one video that was releasing that this was like violence day or is it like multiple people like saying that this is a violent day or whatever i don't i don't quite understand because i don't have tiktok i don't know the email that we got from the school and like the state of wisconsin department of education must have sent like out a template for the schools to use because i have friends all around the state and we all got basically the same email oh just like with the school district and police departments involved changed so all the school districts that I know about in Wisconsin, at least, and in Michigan, I guess, had heard about it. And they said it was a national, like, viral trend. Yikes. But TikTok is funny because the algorithm is based on what you watch. And I obviously don't oh. watch, like, yeah, school shooter TikTok. Mm, I'm no. Not on, I'm not on school shooter is that TikTok. Like a, is that a trend? That should not be, like, a subcategory that people like to watch. No, it shouldn't be. And I don't know. These kids this year are different. I think it's just, it's so hard to be a human right now. Such a scary world. That's true. And, like, the way that the adults are acting out, I feel like it's, like, magnetic, like, amplified so much in these kids. Mm -hmm. Because if the adults are anxious and acting crazy, now the kids are anxious and acting crazy. Mm Mm-hmm. Because these kids are bad this year, <laughs> like to a level that yeah. I asked a teacher this morning. I was like, I don't remember it being like this when my kids were younger. Yeah. Like, was I just like unaware? And she yeah. said, no, it's never been like this before. That is so weird. Mm-hmm. I feel bad for these teachers. You should pay too. them so much more. The good ones. The good ones. Yes. I hate some of these teachers. Oh, no. Substitute gym teachers specifically oh he hates me too so well (laughs) i'm sure it's warranted yes that's all i've got okay let it let's uh get into it some great happy stories you know what i'm actually not gonna bring you down way too too much no no okay so this was recommended by my friend's husband um, and I never would have thought to cover this. So thank you so much, Joe, Joseph, my man. Um, Does he listen? I don't know. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> it's a test. Um, so this is Lake Superior, Wisconsin's underwater graveyard. Oh, mm-hmm. that is interesting. So on this week's episode, I will be covering Lake Superior, the lake that doesn't give up her dead. Uh, the sources for this episode uh, were for from Britannica, Wikipedia, the Great Lakes Steamship Society, Drive Tribe, DBpedia, Cult of Weird, Shipwreck Museum, and the Baltimore Sun. So, Lake Superior is... I'm going to just give you information about it because it is 
it's going to be relative. And I didn't know a lot about this, so it's pretty cool. I like weird random facts, too. Okay. So here's a few. Uh, Lake Superior is a northwestern and largest lake out of the five Great Lakes of North America. It is also one of the world's largest bodies of uh, fresh water on Earth. So I didn't know that. Me either. The original name for Lake Superior was Gichigami, meaning Great Sea. However, in the 17th century, the first French explorers approached the Great Inland Sea and referred to their discovery as Le Lac Superior. How's that? Good. <laughs> After taking control of the region from the French in the 1760s, following their defeat in the French and Indian War, the British renamed it to Lake Superior. Lake Superior is 350 miles long east to west, and its greatest width is 160 miles from north to south. So it's pretty fucking huge. That is huge. It has a surface elevation of 600 feet above sea level and a maximum depth of 1,332 feet. The lake's drainage basin is 49,300 square miles. The lake is so massive and its volume is so large that if it were to be completely emptied as its current rate, it would take 191 years to do so. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, lake Superior receives water from approximately 200 rivers, of which the largest are the Nipigong from the north and the St. Louis from the west. There is enough water in Lake Superior to cover the entire landmass of North and South America to a depth of 12 inches. It is truly beautiful as it has forests, islands, and deep bays backed by high cliffs. Have you been up there? I have. Oh, okay. I've been swimming in Lake Superior. It's oh. very cold. Yes. Okay, so we're going to get into that. <laughs> uh, so there's uh, valuable minerals deposited Depo- deposits surround the lake like iron ore that was once mined and smelted locally from 1848. Uh, other minerals extracted include silver, nickel, and copper, which I did not know. Annual storms on Lake Superior regularly uh, feature wave heights of over 20 feet and waves that are well over 30 feet have been recorded, which is an actual nightmare of mine that I have. It's like a reoccurring dream that I'm like standing at like the base of the beach, right? Mm -hmm. I'm standing right where the water meets. And then all of a sudden there's like this huge wave just like towering over me. Yeah. And then I like see it and I'm panicking. So I turn the other way and I'm running and I'm running and I'm running and I could just see the gloom like right over me in the shadow and then I just wake up that's so scary yeah it's really and it's not like I like nothing happens in my dream but just like the threat of being engulfed so when I read this that it's 30 feet of a wave I'm like nope I'm not into that you need to analyze your dreams later (laughs) yeah I would love to do that because I'm like what does this mean (laughs) um so, the lake, or sorry, lake size uh, reduces the severity of the season uh, that is humid continental climate. Um, so, 
the largeness of it basically counteracts the climate of what it's supposed to be. Okay. The water surface slow reaction to temperatures changes seasonally, ranging between 32 and 55 degrees. Uh, The hills and mountains that border the lake hold moisture and fog, particularly in the fall gives it a gloomy overhang during that season, which I'm all about. Me too. I love it. Mm Mm-hmm. So, uh, let's get into Lake Superior's fatalities. The island located in Lake Superior has collected many historically significant examples of Great Lakes ships that went down between the 1870s and 1947. The descent from the surface to one of Superior's wrecks is a trip into the past to the day the ship went down. Have you seen any of that? Any of the ships? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, The southern shore of Lake Superior between Grand Marias, Michigan, and Whitefish Point is known as the Graveyard of the Great Lakes. And that is due to the fact that more ships have been lost around the Whitefish Point area than any other part of Lake Superior. These shipwrecks are now protected by Whitefish Point Underwater Preserve. One of the biggest shipwrecks was the 1905 storm named the Matafa Storm. It was named this because of the dramatic wreck of the steamer Matafa just off the harbor entrance in Duluth, Minnesota on Lake Superior. The residents of the city stood witness in horror as nine of the Matafa's crew died at the hands of Lake Superior. It was even more tragic because the crew members were just beyond the reach of would-be rescuers. The SS Lafette was a 454-foot-long Great Lakes bulk freighter, and it was another victim of the Matapa storm of 1905. The Lafayette was sailing with her barge Manila, which crashed into it when she ran ashore. The waves caused the ship to break into two. The stern stayed on the rocks while the bow was ripped to shreds by the waters of Lake Superior. Even though this vessel was split in half, only one person perished in this wreckage, which I found very interesting. I don't know how that could have happened. Yeah. But luckily, only one person died. That's good. Well, not luckily, but you know what I mean. Not for that person, but for the rest of them. The ship was declared a total loss. Uh, However, the ship did not go to complete waste as the stern was used to um, rebuild the steamer J.S. Ashley um, that was built in 1909. Additionally, further up the shore, the landmark Split Rock Lighthouse was constructed and opened due to that storm. In all, 29 vessels were damaged or destroyed in the storm and 39 people lost their lives among the 29 vessels. So that's a lot in one yeah, storm. It is. That one must have been quite a storm. Mm-hmm. On November 28, 1905, the Edwin F. Holmes was upbound on Lake Huron with a load of coal for Duluth, Minnesota. After making it safely to the Sioux Locks, the vessel ventured out onto the storm-tossed Lake Superior. It was reported late to arrive in Duluth on November 30th, while her identical sister ship, the Umbria, limped into port with her bridges so badly damaged by the storm that she had to be piloted from her emergency steering station aft 
of the smokestack, which, no, I don't get a lot of these boat references. No. <laughs> Are you, oh no, you have a, you have a boat, don't you? I have a boat, but I don't know all this stuff. <laughs> I just drive it. <laughs> yeah, there's so These big boats are scary, though. Mm-hmm. I'm intimidated. Like, I don't like when the current is strong on the Fox River. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't I like that either. imagine. This type of, yeah. No. Uh-uh. Yeah, it's no. horrifying. I would go home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so the undamaged homes finally reached Duluth on December 1st, passing the broken wreck caused by the Matapa storm. On August 17, 1907, the SS Cypress that was built in Lorraine, Ohio, was launched and was lost on her second voyage hauling iron ore from Superior, Wisconsin to Buffalo, New York. With the only one survivor among the 23 crew members being on board which was Charles G. Pitts. Only one person survived that one. Wow. I don't know how they did that all on their own, like survived on their own from a shipwreck, but that's probably the most traumatizing thing. Probably. It wasn't their time, though. Yeah. On October 11, 1907, uh, the SS Cyprus, the 420-foot ore carrier, sank during a Lake Superior storm in 77 fathoms of water. And fathoms is a unit of length equal to six feet for, I'm assuming, liquid. Okay. The wreckage was finally located on August 2007. Oh, wow. From 1907. That's crazy. Yep. Somebody just ran into it or what? I don't know. I didn't get much of that. Um, I think maybe because there's a lot of um, diving. Oh, yeah. So I'm That's assuming true. it was from diving that they just found <laughs> found it down there. They found any treasure. <laughs> oh, yeah. In 1913, a storm named the White Hurricane, eight years after the 1905 Matapa storm, took over Lake Superior. The Holmes vessel was downbound on Lake Superior under the command of Captain C.D. Brown. Two powerful storms brunt collided over the Great Lakes during their voyage. The Great Storm of 1913, also described as the Freshwater Fury, is memori- memorialized as the worst natural disaster in the recorded history of the lakes. For five straight days from November 6th to November 11th, the massive storm tormented the region. By the time it subsided, 12 ships had gone down, leaving no survivors. Another 32 went under during the storm, seven of which were completely destroyed. The Edwin F. Holmes vessel reached the safety of Whitefish Bay Port on the afternoon of November 8th and dropped anchor to await the reopening of the Sioux Locks, which had been closed due to the storm. The crew took the opportunity to adjust the tarps that made the ship's wooden hatch covers watertight as they had taken a beating during the trip. That evening, conditions eased up, luring a number of unsuspecting vessels out of their safe harbors to continue on their journeys. However, what seemed to be an a pause in the storm was not a pause, and it gave a lot of false hope. As it was nothing but basically like a lure back into it. 
Like the eye of a hurricane? Mm-hmm. Uh, the homes locked down through the Sioux around 4 a.m. on the 9th pass down the St. Mary's River and after stopping to replenish coal, made its way out into the open waters of Lake Huron. Huron? Huron? Huron. As the day progressed, however, conditions, conditions rapidly worsened and by the evening, the lake was being swept by hurricane strength north winds gusting up to 90 miles per hour, whipping up 35-foot waves. Stranded in the middle of the lake, the home struggled bravely through the night. During the height of the storm, it encountered a rogue wave that was reportedly over 70 feet high, causing oh damage God. to her pilot house. Another nearby ship sustained serious damage after being struck by a wave that was said to be over 90 feet. By the afternoon of the 10th, the worst of the storm had passed, revealing a terrible aftermath. The 524-foot steamer Charles S. Price was found floating upside down off the port Huron. Huron? <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> One of eight ships lost. The home's first Captain James Owen didn't make it either. He was in command of Henry B. Smith, which went down in Lake Superior during the height of the storm, taking the entire crew down with it. In 1924-1918, three minesweepers, uh, Inkerman, Sarosol, and Sebastopol, left the harbor of Fort William, Ontario, on the northern shore of Lake Superior. They headed for the Atlantic Ocean via the Great Lakes and the St. Louis Lawrence, or sorry, St. Lawrence River, 76 French sailors made up the crews of Inkerman and Sarasols with the addition of two veteran Canadian captains, Captain R. Wilson and W.J. Murphy. As the ship steamed further into Lake Superior, they encountered a blizzard with recorded winds of 50 miles per hour and waves 30 feet high. All three ships soon lost sight of each other through the snow and waves. Water flooded the Sebastopol, and it unfortunately reached part of the engine room and nearly put out the coal fires in her boilers. The storm pounded Sebastopol for two days, but the vessel managed to reach Salt St. Marie as the eastern end of Lake Superior. It eventually became a part apparent that Inkerman and Sarissel were lost uh, days passed, rumors spread that the warship sailed through the locks unnoticed all the way to St. Lawrence River, but it was assumed the ships were lost. On December 3rd, 1918, 10 days after the three ships left Fort William, a search effort was launched, but because of the war, the wartime censorship, it was small and the public were not included on the search. The public knew nothing of the loss of the Anchorman and Sarasol until wartime censorship in Canada ended in 1918. Which I didn't know that that was happening. Did you know that? No, I don't know. This is very interesting stuff. Oh, good. I'm glad. Uh, no wreckage of Anchorman or Sarasol was ever found and their exact whereabouts and fates remain unknown. 
With 78 crew members dying in the wreckage, their sinking marked the largest loss of life on Lake Superior to date. On November 10, 1975, the SS Edmund Fitzgerald succumbed to the Lake Superior and its endured its demise. SS Edmund Fitzgerald was intensely battered by Lake Superior that the 729-foot ship split right down the middle. The wreckage took the lives of all 29 crew members and no bodies were recovered after. SS Edmund Fitzgerald was the latest ship to sink in Lake Superior in a storm. Gordon Lightfoot sings in the ballad The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald that immortalized Lake Superior, and it goes, Superior, they said, never gives up her dead, which is really catchy. I know that song. Do you? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is that like a boat thing? No, I'm oh. thinking, like, it had to be, like, a school concert song. Oh, wow. That's really morbid. Yeah. <laughs> I like it, though. It's gotta be. Right? I don't know how else I would know it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this sentiment in the ballad is true due to the unusually cold water under 36 degrees on average. On December 4th, 1927, the 250 SS Loops. An English bolt freighter was carrying machinery, food, and building materials on her last trip of the 1927 season to Thunder Bay, Ontario, which makes me really sad because this was like the last trip that it was supposed to go on and it just went through all this that I'm going to go into. It was a relatively small vessel for the Great Lakes, even in the 20s, but she was limited in size in order to fit through the existing Welland Canal locks of that time. Due to this design, it was called a Canaller-class ship and spent most of her time hauling package freight west and bulk freight like grains east between can, uh, Canadian ports. SS Kamloops made its way through the Sioux locks into the Lake Superior, on and then anchored off Whitefish Point to wait out the storm front. The SS Kamloops was to follow the 345 bulk freighter Quiduk across Lake Superior from this transport. The two vessels made slow headway across the lake due to a, a winter storm from a second front that had blown in. With temperatures below zero, wind whipped snow and lake-induced fog, Visibility was not a thing. That sounds really miserable. It does, because it's so scary to be, like, far out in the water to begin with, where you can't see any land, because... You you can't do anything. You can't do anything, and it's frigid, and you're getting slapped in the face with icy winds. Like, that just sounds awful. It does. The Quiddick last saw SS M Loops... Kamloops, <laughs> not Amloops, um, covered in ice making its way through the storm. The Quiddick was under the assumption that SS Kamloops was following behind, and on December 6th, the Quiddick reported seeing a landmass appear ahead of them and having to make a hard turn. They made an effort to signal to SS Kamloops, who had no wireless communication, but never saw the ship again during this voyage. SS Kamloops never showed up in port, and by December 12th, the search for and her crew began. The search 
focus on Isle Royale, but being so late into the season, only minimal searching was conducted before operations were postponed on December 22nd. Yeah, that's got to be a really bad time to go searching. Yeah. The water's got to be so cold that time of mm -hmm. year, too. Yeah. Uh, searchers experienced heavy seas and growing ice and couldn't resume until the spring. The search resumed in spring as planned as the ice cleared on Lake Superior. Unexpectedly, some fishermen off the coast of uh, the island discovered two bodies washed up on shore. The bodies were later identified as crew members of the SS Kamloops. Then in June of 1928, several fishermen discovered six more bodies on the island. Five of them huddled together, including 22-year-old Alice Butteridge. Later that year, a trapper discovered a message on, in a bottle that read, I am the last one left alive, freezing and starving to death on Isle Royale. I just want mom and dad to know my fate. And the letter was signed, Al, who is dead. It, it was signed, Al, who is dead. That's so sad. Mm -hmm. Much of Isle Royale's shoreline is rocky cliff, so it is presumed that once they reach the shore, they would have to have climbed up 20-plus feet of ice-covered rocks just to get onto the island. Once they were there, they faced, were faced with intense force winds out of the northwest, temperatures down to 38 degrees below zero, and a remote and dangerous wilderness. So it's just like bad news bears all around. Yeah, you find some land, but it's totally unsafe. Mm -hmm. If you can get to the top of the cliff, yep. you're just stuck there. Yep. Uh, the wreck was thought to be near Isle Royale due to reported debris found near the bodies on the island, but nothing was ever found. And the reported debris had been washed away by the time officials searched made their way there. It wasn't until 1977 that the SS Kamloops would be discovered off of what is now Kamloops Point on Isle Royale. The wreck lies only 400 feet from Kamloops Point and around 260 feet of water. Thanks to Lake Superior's depths never getting far above freezing, the wreck is well preserved. Inside the water emerged SS Kamloops is known as one of the eeriest sights in all wreck diving. A body with flesh preserved by a, a sort of ice water mummification lies in the ship's engine room. And I don't know if that's still today, but it was noted a long time ago that there was like a body down there. Just chilling. That's crazy. Yeah. They're like, oh, I guess you want to stay with your ship, or he well, he just went down with it. Yeah, but they didn't try to get him out. I'm assuming he couldn't get out for some reason. Like they were trapped, or like the water was like. No, I mean like now. <laughs> oh yeah, leave him there. Yeah. <laughs> You're like no. <laughs> um. So normally, bacteria decaying a sunken body will bloat the water, or I'm sorry, the body with gas causing it to float to the surface after a few days, as as many of you may know. But what is different about Lake Superior's water is that it's cold enough year-round to inhibit bacterial growth, and bodies tend to sink and never resurface. Yeah. But Lake Superior doesn't stop at just keeping dead bodies. 
It also does not relinquish vessels and keeps them at the lake's bottom. The decay, corrosion, and incrustation that over time obliterate many man-made objects in salt water are preserved in the this abnormal lake. Painted woodwork, lettering on signs, and even wrapper labels sunk more than half a century ago is still bright, covered only with a thin layer of algae, and are still legible. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. After a 1980 cruise of Lake Superior Jean-Michel Cousteau, son of the legendary undersea explorer Jacques Cousteau, spoke of finding a wooden sailing yacht that had been on the bottom for decades, sitting intact, upright, and fully rigged as if ready to sail. The the Cousteau exploring team discovered what Superior's cadre of skilled cold water scuba divers already knew because its depths are fresh, perpetually cold and near sterile. The great lakes most notorious ship killer is also one of the world's best preserver of artifacts. Lake Superior is known to be a magnet for marine catastrophe and due to the often foggy waters that come from the shipping lanes, the studded rock shoreline and the murderous winds and storm waves that hit the island of Lake Superior at full force. But people still choose to do this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Why? Great observation. <laughs> Why? So I'm just going to do... Uh, those were the major shipwrecks that I wanted to cover. Um, but I'm going to list off the 69 total shipwrecks that Lake Superior had. So on December 18th, 1899... Uh, the vessel 115 was stranded on Pick Island. On November 7th, 1885, Algoma ran around off the shore of Mott Island and was done. Um, in 1905, the Amboy ran aground during the Matafa storm of 1905. The America in June 7th, 1928, a passenger and delivery ship that ran aground on the re- the reef of the shore of Island Royale. On October 7th, 1897, the Antelope Schooner barge sank near the Apostle Islands, a wreck discovered in 2016 near Michigan Island. May 1st, 1940, the Arlington steamship that broke apart in heavy seas went down as well. November 21st, 1902, the Burn, a steel-hulled freighter that went down and missing on Lake Superior, so unable to find it apparently. Mm. On April 28th, 1914, the Benjamin Noble was lost off of Duluth and actually found in 2004. The Big Bay Sloop is an unidentified sloop believed to be dated from 1880 through 1920 that was also found. No explanation for that. Hmm. Uh, On November 6, 1918, Chester A. Gondon, a bulk steel freighter that ran aground in fog of Island Royale, August 8th, 1887, City of Ashland, a steam-powered tugboat which caught fire near the shore of its namesake city, Ashland, Wisconsin. 
on November 30th, 1926. City of Bangor, a steamer that was stranded in a storm with a cargo of 248 Chrysler's went down. August 26, 1875, the Comet, a cargo and passenger steamship that suffered a series of marine time accidents before her final collision with the Manitoba in Whitefish Bay. On July 25th, 1887, the Cumberland, a paddle wheeler that struck a reef near Rock of Ages Light. October 11th, 1907, the Cypress, 1907 Lake Freighter that capsized near Deer Park. December 1st, 1908, the DM Clemson went missing on Lake Superior on the 1st. Which I just said. <laughs> uh, the Edmund Fitzgerald that I spoke about was lost and destroyed. Not so much lost, but definitely destroyed on November 10th, 1975. On June 4th, 1947, the Emperor Freighter that ran aground off of the island Isle Royale, the USS Essex, on October 13, 1931, a decommissioned U.S. Navy steam sloop that was scraped and burned to the waterline went down as well. On November 28, 1905, George Spencer, a wooden freighter that ran aground in the Matafa Storm in 1905. November 1, 1924, Glen Lund, Glenlin, a freighter that ran aground off Menagerie Island. Menagerie. Wow, these names are really fucking me up. August. Why do they make the names so weird? I don't know. Oh, very Frenchy, I think. Mm. August 11th, 1911. Ganilda, a yacht that ran up on the Shoal Lake, on Lake Superior. May 1933, the George M. Cox, a ship that ran aground on a calm day, hmm. which is weird. May 3rd, 1922, the Harriet B. lost off two harbors being rammed in fog. Uh, November 10th, 1913, Henry B. Smith lost in Lake Superior during the Great Lake Storm of 1913. So that's the White Hurricane Storm. Okay. October 20th, 1998, the Henry Chisholm, a wooden freighter that sank off the shore of Isle Royale. May 11th, 1953, the Henry Steinbrenner. Uh, it was a Great Lakes freighter lost and destroyed. May 3rd, 1905, the Hesper, a wooden bulk freighter steamship that sank in a snowstorm at Silver Bay. September 16, 1901, the Hudson, a steel-hulled steamer that was lost with all hands off Eagle Harbor. Uh, the wreck was discovered in 2019 off of the Eagle River. September 2, 1905, the Iosco, a wooden steamer that sank near the Huron Islands. Huron. Huron. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to say that right. <laughs> That's okay. 
November 28th, 1905, Ira H. Owen, early steel steamer lost off of Otter Island with all hands. I don't know what all hands means. I'm assuming that all of the people on there died. That's what it sounds like. Okay. 1816, the Invincible, which is an ironic name. A wooden ship employed in the fur trade by the Northwest Company. Uh, it sank in a storm generally considered to be the first recorded ship to sink in the Great Lakes. May 10th, 1884, the J.S. Severins sank off uh, and never lo- and no lives were lost, and the wreck was discovered in 2016. Oh, wow. Uh, July 12th, 1909, John B. Cowell, um, let me see here sank in Whitefish Bay with the loss of 14 lives after colliding with the Isaac M. Scott. July 27th, 1884, John M. Osborne, a steam barge rammed by Terror of the Lakes, Alberta. December 7th, 1927, the Kamloops, and then the Lafayette on November 28th, 1905. Uh, on April 18th, 2020, no, 1922. Wow. I was going to say 2020. <laughs> <laughs> I'm foreseeing the future. <laughs> the Lambton, the Canadian lighthouse tender that sank in White Fish Bay. November 1886, the Lucerne, a commercial schooner that sank off the coast of Long Island. Uh, November 28th, 1905, the Madeira, a casualty of the Ma- Taffa storm in 1905. Uh, in 1903, the Marquette, a bulk freighter that sank off Michigan Island on June 2nd, 1981. This is the May space flower, not the Mayflower. Two masted scow schooner that capsized off the Lester River. May 13th, 1921, a, uh, the Mistec. A schooner barge that survived the 1919 storm that took her partner, the SS Myron. Um, on October 2nd, 1901, the M.M. Drake sank off the Vermilion Point on Lake Superior. December 6, 1906, the Monarch, a passenger and delivery freighter lost in a storm of Isle Royale. September 1st, 1903, the Moonlight, a schooner that sank off the coast of Michigan Island. November 23rd, 1919, the Myron Lumber Hooker lost in a storm on Lake Superior. Uh, June 4th, 1904, the Nigeria, large wooden rafting tug ran around a knife island at Knife Island. Why would you name it island Knife Island? I don't know. But- <laughs> Bad, bad choice. October 6, 1905, the Nook Bay, a wooden schooner that caught fire and sank off Scockton Island. September 14, 1915, Onako sprang a leak and sank near Knife River. Jesus. Oh, the river is named after Knife, too. <laughs> okay. <laughs> November 13, 1909, the Atawa. A tugboat that caught fire after rescuing a stranded steamboat. So the rescuer also went down. So sad. (laughs) 
1905, the Pretoria, a schooner barge that sank off Otter Island. May 27, 1933, the U.S. Puritan, or USS Puritan, a commercial steamship renamed George M. Cox in 1933 that struck a reef near Rock of Ages Light. June 4, 1899, R.G. Stewart, a commercial packet steamer that caught fire and sank off the coast of Michigan Island. November 17, 1902, the Robert Wallace, a wooden freighter that sank after her stern pipe burst. July 29, 1901, the Sagamore, a whaleback barge, sank in a collision with a northern queen near Icarus Point in Whitefish Bay. November 21st, 1891, the Samuel Mather sank in a collision with the Brazil off Icarus Point in Whitefish Bay with no loss of life, thankfully. October 30th, 1896, the Samuel P. Ellie, a schooner loss off two harbors. June 20th, 1953, the Scotia rammed by the freighter Burlington in heavy fog off Trowbridge Island near the Sleeping Giant. September 2nd, 1905, the Savona, a steamboat that ran aground off the coast of Sand Island. May 8th, 1916, S.R. Kirby, struck by a giant wave, broke in two and sank off the Kiwano. Oh my gosh, that is quite the name. Peninsula. I don't know what that is. <laughs> August 20th, 1920, the Superior City collided with Willis L. King in Whitefish Bay. November 16th, 1900, T.H. Camp, a wooden tugboat that sank between Madeline and Basswood Island. Bass. Basswood Island. November 17th, 1906, the Theano, a steel ocean steamer that sank in deep water after striking a reef. January 6th, 1924, the Thomas Fryant, fish tug that sank after being holed by ice. I don't even know what that means, hold by ice. I don't know either. June 7th, 1902, the Thomas Wilson was struck by the wooden steamer George Hadley and sunk less than a mile out of the Duluth Ship Canal. September 17th, 1892, the Vienna rammed by the uh, or sorry, rammed in Whitefish Bay. October 18th, 1910, William C. Moreland, a 600-foot-long steel-hulled bulk freighter that ran aground on Sawtooth Reef. And lastly, August 30th, 1892, the Western Reserve broke into in a summer storm on Lake Superior. So it is estimated that there are about 550 wrecks in Lake Superior, and most of which are undiscovered. Today, original artifacts can be seen on display at the Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum in Whitefish Point, as well as the Dawson Great Lakes Museum in Detroit, and the Steamship Valley Camp Museum in Salt State uh, Marie in Michigan. 
if you go, I suggest doing a charter by professionals <laughs> like these dive charters, uh, Lake Superior Excursions, Royal Diver, Superior Diver, and Superior Trips. Be safe, uh, as a lot of deaths are also contributed by swimmers um, who have drowned and not just shipwrecks. Mm. So if you end up going, be sure to practice safety and follow instructions, but also enjoy the shipwrecks. Um, and remember, removal of any part of these wrecks, however small, is against the law and punishable with hefty fines. So don't even think about it because it might be cursed. That's very true. <laughs> I have some questions. Oh, yeah. Is Whitefish Bay just full of shipwrecks? Like, how do Sounds you even like get it. through? Sounds like it. <laughs> well, imagine like a ship on top of a ship on top of a ship. I think it's so deep, and that's why I wanted to cover the like facts of the yeah. of the lake before, so it can give it some context. Right. Of it's how crazy. much how many crashed right there in mm-hmm. the same place over and over. It might just be like cursed. I think it's cursed. Yeah, I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. I also want to know how much did people get paid for this terrible job? Because <laughs> I can't imagine the amount of money you would have to pay me to be like, just like a 75% chance you're going to die today. But here you go. Right. Get and on it, this shit. It's going to be, well, and, you know, this would be a whole, like, two months. Yeah. Traveling and being in shitty conditions and. Yeah. Yeah. I would not. Freezing and wet and. Mm-hmm miserable i'm sure not like a very comfortable bed Mm-mm. probably one of those like hammocks situation fish <laughs> yeah <laughs> fish at all times breakfast lunch dinner my other question is how do you run into ships that are this big there's a lot of collisions well, i know <laughs> like i'm thinking they just lose control the fog, and they're maybe. just like oh fuck <laughs> it that's just happens I, that's yeah. what i was picturing or the fog thing is definitely valid as well like these guys are just out here like oh whoops, whoops. it's not a whoops situation no but it feels like it was <laughs> yeah yeah so that is the uh, Lake Superior, Wisconsin's underwater graveyard, the lake that doesn't give up her dead. You did a great job. Oh, my God. I butchered all those names. <laughs> oh, well. Somebody can tell us. And I cannot say Blake Huron correctly. No. <laughs> I don't know if I'm saying it right. I don't care anymore. Maybe you can pronounce it however you want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is my podcast, isn't it? it is. <laughs> there are no rules here. We do what we want. Mm-hmm. We're both Sagittarius. We have no rules. No, no rules. <laughs> All right. My story is going to be different. Okay. I'm going to talk about the Cadigan sisters. The Cadigan sisters. Okay. Yes. It's not going to be lighthearted. Okay, let's get into it. Okay. <laughs> so, Cecilia was 85 and Anne was 90. And these were sisters who lived in a two story white farmhouse in a rural town near Casco in Kiwani County, about 20 miles east of Green Bay, for people not familiar with the area. And both of the sisters were former school teachers. So on November 16th, 1991, it was Cecilia's 85th birthday, 
and according to the notes on her green elevator calendar, the day was 43 degrees. It sounds like they wrote little notes each day on the calendar. It's like a little journal kind of, oh, like the temperature. That's so cute! It is. The pair planned to eat an early dinner of Swiss steak, which in a lot of articles sounds like... How do people know what they plan to eat this day? What is a Swiss steak? I also do not know that. <laughs> that sounds very interesting. I was imagining like Swiss cheese. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Gravy. Gravy? Oh. Hey, I'm, I'm going to look that up later. You should look it up so we know. Okay. I guess it was cooking on the stove. Oh, okay. So then they plan to head to an anniversary memorial mass for their brother at 4.30 p.m. And the pair, however, would never arrive to the mass. Oh, jeez. So around 6 p.m., neighbors were becoming concerned because they were wondering why the sisters would miss mass, let alone miss the memorial mass for their brother. Right. So the neighbors came to the house, and they found a chaotic scene in the living room of the sisters' home. Anne was dead, slumped over, dead in her chair. Cecilia was found dead under their toppled couch. And it sounds like Anne, I mean, Anne was 90. She was having trouble even getting out of her chair, so she probably never even moved. Oh, man. But you know, Cecilia was a young 85, so she probably tried to fight. Oh, no. So, then they report that the neighbors were so scared that they began uncharacteristically locking their doors. Like God, people, please lock your doors. That shouldn't be out of character. That should yeah. be common practice. They were so upset about it in these articles. <laughs> we have to lock our doors. God forbid, you gotta lock your door. Yeah, yeah, lock your doors. Seriously. So, at this time, police announced that they will be keeping most information tight-lipped as to not let anything slip to potential suspects. Of course, hmm. that's their thing, right? Yeah. And then, according to court records, someone did witness a large, light-colored, older model sedan parked in the driveway of the residence with a lone white male driver in the vehicle sometime that afternoon. There's only, like, 600 people in Casco at this time. Maybe still today. Mm. And so everybody really knew each other and was very nosy, it sounds like. Yeah. Sounds like a nosy area. Yeah. Yeah. So the investigation found no forced entry into the home, of course, because their doors were unlocked. Right, right. Yeah. And the phone line cord had been disconnected, and the sisters' purses were stolen. (sighs) I'm going to try to go through things in chronological order as much as I can so okay. I don't confuse people. You do, you girl. <laughs> okay. So in 1991 through 1994, Kiwani County investigates the homicide, focusing on a suspect that had moved to Colorado. This suspect was 22 years old and was described as ho- having a horrible temper. He also had a love for shooting pool. Just days after the murder... Uh, Four days after the murder, he moved back to Colorado. He had been living in the area, and four days later, he moved to Colorado. Okay. So the police did eventually get a warrant and go to Colorado and searched his station wagon, but this search did not yield any evidence, of course. Yeah. Because it was probably like a year later. Right. 
So during this time, the police are also pursuing a lead that the sister's inheritance could be a possible motive for the murder. But um, that seems weird to me, given their ages. Like, yeah, 90 like, and 85, you couldn't wait it out. Right. So it must have been... Okay, never mind. I got, so I got some thoughts. Their estate was valued at around $500,000. And so, when was this? 1991. I was going to yep. say, is this like old times where it was like more money? But no, that's the same. <laughs> well, I think that would probably be like a million dollars now. Nah. You think? Yeah, I think so. Huh. Somebody tell me the right. inflation rate from yeah. 1991 to now. Yeah. Because I feel like it was a lot. Yeah, I don't know. That's just a makeup number. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that seems wildly like a lot. Yeah. It's possible, though. So, a male relative of the Cadigans was also reportedly a suspect because he had apparently asked his girlfriend if she believed he could be behind the murders. Like, hey, do you think I could have done it? I don't know. That's so creepy. Yeah. That would... Why? I don't know. However, he informed police that he had not been to the Cadigans' residence since 1989, but the neighbors disagree with this information they're like nah i'm pretty sure we've seen him there i think he's lying Mm -hmm. but and this relative was said to have a shaky alibi but he did refuse to take a polygraph test which i can't blame him there because polygraph tests are sketch right and then the case goes cold as they often do right Uh, so then in june of 1995 the police start pursuing Beth Labatt, I think is how you say it, I hope, of mm. um, Green Bay as a suspect. And at this time, Beth was serving time in prison for violating her probation. So fast forward to December 23rd of 1996, and Beth is charged and arrested for the murders. Okay. Then in January 24th, 1997, Chuck Benoit is named as an accomplice. I don't know if that's really how you say it, but. It right, we good. don't give a fuck about names today. We don't. No. <laughs> He's named as an accomplice because apparently the two had committed numerous burglaries around the Green Bay area. Oh. So the police are like. Okay, our theory is that she went in, killed these ladies, mm-hmm. took their money, and he stayed out in the car. That's a good theory. I mean, I, I, that sounds correct to me. It sounds like a good theory, right? Yeah. Okay. She's like, wrong. <laughs> you are wrong. It does sound like a good theory. If there was, like, any evidence of them ever being in the area. Oh, so there's no evidence. So... They had been in the Green Bay area committing crimes. It's going to get interesting. So in December of 1997, Beth's trial is moved to Appleton. I'm not sure why they didn't try it in the county. Right. But they decided to move it to Appleton. And then she goes to trial and there's multiple prison informants that testify against her, alleging that she confessed to the murders and she's found guilty. The court also allowed in evidence of prior acts committed by Beth, which indicated that at at least two previous times, she had knocked on people's doors asking to use their phone as a way to get into their homes and try to rob them. Oh, shit. Yeah. So she 
like one time she knocked on a door. She said she was looking for somebody else. And the person was like, yeah, you got the wrong house. And mm-hmm. she's like, well, can I come in and get a drink and use your bathroom? And people were just like, sure. What? No, no, you can't do that. And so the one time she went in, used the bathroom and left. Mm-hmm. And then she went to Kmart and tried to cash a check. She had stole some checks while she was in the house. Oh. And then like Kmart called and was like, hey, somebody's trying to cash in your checks. Is that okay? And they're like, no. <laughs> she came in to get some Kool-Aid and she just stole my checkbook. Oh my God. Yeah, you can't trust anybody. No, and another time she, like, went into a house and the person was older, like, 74, and she tried to steal something and they're like, no, and she pulled out a knife and, oh. they, and they're like, you're not going to do anything. And she was basically like, yeah, you're right. And she put the knife back in her pocket and left. Oh, my <laughs> God. She's like, yep, you're right. You're Called right. my bluff. I just wanted to grab some checks and go. Oh, my God. <laughs> Thank God checks aren't a big thing anymore. No, I mean, yeah, I should probably hide my checks better. <laughs> Find your checks, people. <laughs> oh, I don't even know where my checkbook is. Really? It could be anywhere. I'm pretty sure mine's like, okay, never mind. <laughs> never mind. So the court, this this is the crazy part. The court also admitted testimony that Beth had made to investigators in which she described her alter ego. So what happened is Beth gets questioned about this murder and she's like, I would never, I would never hurt anyone. This would never happen. The investigators push her and they're like, well, what if you like weren't in your right state of mind or something? And she's like, tell us about this alter ego, bad Beth. Wait, so how do they know about her alter ego? She just like told them I have an alter ego or? Yeah, they were just like, are you sure you couldn't have done it and forgotten kind of thing? <laughs> and she's just like, maybe. <laughs> yeah, it really, have you ever watched like that Bad Confessions show on Netflix? I can't no. think of what it's called. Uh-uh. They really tell, it's crazy. Okay. I'll have to find it and show it to you. Okay. But that's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. So Beth said it's possible that, oh, Bad Beth comes out when she's drinking. Okay. So okay. she said, Bad Beth. It's possible that Bad Beth. It's great alter ego. Yeah. Bad Beth could have came out while she was drinking and she doesn't remember because she was blacked out. That's what she says to investigators. And they allow this testimony from the investigators at the trial, which it sounds like a bunch of bullshit to me. Yeah. You can't just blame. Like, sounds good. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Blame it all on Bad Beth. Yes. Mm hmm. I need an alter ego like that. Yeah, I I wish I could (laughs) just blame everything on an alter ego. We could do it. Okay. So in January of 1998, Benoit, her supposed accomplice, is tried in Ozaki County. They also moved his case to another county. But he is found not guilty on all charges because his attorney proves that he didn't know Beth until three months after the murders. So their little crime spree had not begun until three months after. That's a big the murders plot twist. Mm-hmm. Thank God he had a good attorney. Yeah, yeah. But the sad part is, is people still think he was involved. Oh come on. Mm-hmm. No critical thinking is lacking. Yeah. So February eleventh, nineteen ninety eight, Outagamie County Judge. Dennis Lubke, who is not a judge right now, he must have retired, mm-hmm. gives Beth 
who was 30 at the time, two life sentences. Wow, just, like, slamming it on her. Yeah, life sentence for each murder. Yeah. So then, our good friends at the Innocence Project pop up in May of 2004. And they're like, yeah, there's something a little fishy with this case. I don't think Bad Beth did it. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> what if they just came in and said that? Bad Beth did not do this. <laughs> yeah. So they ask for some DNA testing. Yeah. And they begin doing DNA testing on some items from the crime scene, which includes a pool stick, which was used in the murder, Mm -hmm. which had been, which they also found out had been purchased at a Kmart in Sturgeon Bay. So, fast forward to November 2005, Judge Lukey grants Beth a new trial because DNA points to an unknown male suspect. Okay. Which I kind of figure, this seems like a man crime to me. And Not to be sexist, but I don't see, like, a little woman killing some old ladies. With a pool? With a pool stick. Yeah, that sounds really vicious. I mean, women can be vicious, but, Oh, like, yeah. Yeah. For sure. I don't know. I don't know. And so the judge is like, okay, you can have a new trial. Then, almost a year later, August 1st, 2006... Andrew Nays, the prosecutor, dismisses the charges against Beth just one month before the new trial was supposed to begin. He's like, yeah, I'm not going to try you again. Yeah, I was going to say, why don't you just dismiss it if she's, like, not even... Because they like to double down. Yeah, yeah, they really do. Mm -hmm. Then in September... So, at that time, she's released. She's free. Mm -hmm. Then, a year later, September 2007... Beth was driving intoxicated, crashed her truck into a ditch in red granite, and died. <gasps> Holy shit. Mm-hmm. I did not see that coming. No, I didn't either. It's very sad. Yeah. She did like eight years in prison, I uh, think I calculated, and wow. then she got out and made it a year. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. What a life. Mm-hmm. And then in 2017, the case is cold. They're, it's inactive. Didn't we get DNA? We have DNA. Okay. So, I want to talk about what experts think went wrong in this case and in so many other wrongful conviction cases. So, in this case, there were numerous items with DNA on them, including a pool stick, which was snapped in half during the murders, a pair of socks the killer had used to wipe up blood, and hairs that were left on Cecilia. So, they have a lot of different evidence. Yeah. It doesn't sound like it was a clean crime scene. It wasn't like... 1991, there was no CSI. Nobody knew to, like, clean up after themselves. They were just doing their thing and right. leaving. This guy did not have latex gloves, didn't have no little pillows on his shoes. He he was just doing his damn thing and left. Mm-hmm. So Keith Finley, co-director of the Wisconsin Innocence Project, states that the reliance on federal DNA databases is one of the problems that Wisconsin law enforcement faced when trying to tie DNA to crime scenes. So our state's law enforcement is relying on the federal DNA system. When we've talked about before, there's like a lot of different private DNA systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The state should, they are creating their own now, which should be better. But before, it was only the federal DNA, and it's still, like, the big thing. They just plug it into the federal database, and they just, like, take a nap and wait for a hit. No investigation. We just 
Chill. We're chilling. No, waiting. No. No. What happened to good detective work? I don't know. <laughs> Did it ever exist? I, I, well, okay. What about Paul Holes? That, yeah. that man investigated. Oh, yeah. He did the damn thing. Yes. So, there's some people. He's good. He should take on all the cases. Yeah, he should. Well, speaking of Paul Holes, if yeah. people do have DNA that they need to get tested, mm-hmm. they can call Paul Holes. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> he will help law enforcement agencies if they ask for it. Him and Billy Jensen have a fund for helping. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. Love those guys. All you have to do is call them. So, Finley's team is the one who took up the fight for Beth. Finley had asked the investigators in the case to reopen the investigation, but he didn't receive any information or feedback from them. He said that the prosecutors had no physical evidence or even an eyewitness to tie Beth to the murders. Like, there was nothing to tie her to the case besides for that stupid bad Beth confession that she made and some inmate testimony. That's it. No. That is not... Like, no one said she was even in that vicinity during that time. Right. So it's crazy to me. You'd just be going about your life and just be snatched up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't want to be snatched up. Me either. I would save you. Oh, thank you. I'll call polls. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, listen, my friend's in danger. We have a podcast, too. (laughs) (laughs) You need to care about us. (laughs) I love it. So, Finley is not sure why the authorities in Kiwani haven't pursued other avenues. Avenues? God, I can't talk when we start recording. Oh my God, it's like I like all words like are out the window for me. <laughs> they are. <laughs> so he doesn't know why they're not looking into other avenues in, of investigation. Like, you just like made up your mind. Here we go. Mm. So, after all, it's hard to determine what could be done next when the little information is shared with the public. They're not telling anybody anything. Like, nobody knows what they've done, who they've talked to, who they haven't talked to. Yeah. So, how can anybody help? Right. And sadly, many residents still believe Beth was involved in the murders and maybe just didn't leave her DNA. Okay. So, this is one of the interesting things to me about cold cases. No matter what the final outcome is, some people always believe the story spun by investigators and prosecutors. Yeah. They just can't see how these people who appear to dedicate their lives to justice could get it wrong or even do any wrong. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely the huge thing that they think that they're not normal, average mistake doing people like they're yeah. hu- they have human errors they can be wrong and they don't see them that way for some reason right and like they might have thought that they got it right but evidence evolves yeah. and yeah. we learn things it's called science mm, we love science around here we do science is important it's real <laughs> <laughs> So one of the large problems people are seeing with DNA exonerations across the country is that the same investigators that prosecuted the wrong person are now in charge of the investigation after the exoneration. Oh. So these departments often don't want to admit that they were wrong. Right. And now they have to start over. Mm. So instead, they often dig in their heels and double down on the fact that they got it right the first time and that somehow the DNA is wrong or there had to be multiple perpetrators or 
I've seen like the most outlandish theories from police and prosecutors of how DNA exonerated some somebody, but they're still guilty. Right. Yeah. Or like when they, I hate when they make them sign that thing where it's like, we're we're letting you, we're releasing you, mm-hmm. you're exonerated or whatever, and then. But you also have to sign something where, like, it's no fault through, like, the system. Yeah. And, like, you can't, like, sue them or anything. Like, they basically say, we're releasing you, but you have to sign that we weren't in the wrong. Yeah. That's so fucked up. Like, the West Memphis 3 case. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be like, you fucked me so hard and didn't even take me to dinner. And here (laughs) you are, like, asking me to do this in order to be let go for not doing something yeah did you see in that case they tried to get some dna evidence tested recently Mm -mm. and no and the prosecutors said the dna was destroyed in a fire uh like all the evidence was destroyed in a fire on such and such a date so they pulled public records Mm -hmm. to see if there was any kind of fire in the evidence room or anything didn't happen why are there fires in the evidence room like that is not something that should be happening Mm -mm. so they're saying it now it didn't happen we're like oh Oh. where the fuck is the evidence yeah we want this tested where is the evidence they're not trying to answer they can't do that if you look up Jillian Pensavalli on Twitter, she's oh, yeah. got, like, a huge campaign Good. for the West Memphis Three. Like, call the prosecutors and be like, well, where the fuck is the evidence? Yeah. But in a nice way, so they don't hang up on you. Right. <laughs> she's... I like her, too. Me, too. Yes. Let the women do the work. Mm. That's what she always says. Yeah. And then... Okay, back to my story. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is, like, the longest one. So, Jim Trainum. A retired Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police homicide detective has published a book pertaining to wrongful convictions. And he states that in some cases, the police will go back to the beginning and say, like, hey, what did we get wrong the first time? How did we end up here? What could we have missed? Mm -hmm. And that's how we find, like, the real killers. But in many cases, they just refuse to admit to their mistakes. Right. Maria Brunette, Beth's mother, would like the real killers brought to justice, not only so people can stop blaming her daughter, but so the victims can get the justice that they deserve. Like, she's really been trying to push for them to do the investigating, even though her daughter was cleared, she still is pushing for it. Yeah. Because she said it was terrible sitting through trial watching her daughter get convicted of murder that she didn't do. Right, and then all these people think, like, that they got it right the first time and her name in these people's eyes are, is mm-hmm. not cleared. Yeah, the neighbors still say they still think she was involved. Oh my god. And the Chuck Benoit, the alleged accomplice that was cleared, mm-hmm. he said he won't even go to Kiwani County because people still think he was involved too even though he didn't even know her at the time. Jesus Christ. It's like People live in the Stone Age. and They do. It's crazy. There's so many, like, so much small town craziness in yeah. Wisconsin. Oh, yeah. So, I really think the craziest thing is that people make their egos so much more important than, like, finding a murderer. Yeah. Yeah. They would that's rather... what it boils down to, is ego. Yeah. It really does. And that pisses me off. Yeah. Pisses me off, too. And I got this information from the Washington Times and the Journal Times. 
And that's all I've got. We have no information. They just gave it up. They're just like, well, that was a long time ago. (laughs) Wow. I love that the Innocence Project, like, does, goes beyond anybody's expectations of, like, putting in the work more than actual investigators. And they get results, you know. And I just can't believe that investigators don't have that same drive or don't have that same ambition to do what you know these people do yeah one of the things i love about the wisconsin innocence project too is they work with uw madison law students oh so it's a lot of students that are doing this work and doing the investigations and oh that's awesome yeah that's where they're based out of uw madison law school good for them Mm -hmm. doing the damn thing yes i looked up swiss steak Okay, we need to know. Swiss steak is a dish of meat, usually beef, that is swissed by rolling or pounding beef being braised in a cooking pot of stewed vegetables and seasonings and is often served with gravy. (laughs) (laughs) I knew there was some gravy in there. That's from Wikipedia. So thank you, Wikipedia. And donate to Wikipedia, please. Yeah, thanks for solving our food questions. Yeah, that's such a Wisconsin thing to eat, I feel like. It is. Just like meat, smother it with gravy and collar good. Yeah, just put gravy on whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I make stuff just to eat gravy. Oh my god. (laughs) I, okay, I thought you were kidding for a second, but no, no. I'm not. I have a problem. You're really, like, pour I, some gravy on me. Yeah, I really like gravy. <laughs> Such a freak. Okay. <laughs> Got anything else? No, that was a whole whopping <laughs> hour and 24 minutes of craziness, so I'm pretty done. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like, subscribe, review. Rate, yeah, and follow. Rate, review, follow. And we love you. We do. Bye, centers. Bye. All the Sins of Wisconsin was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Fallon and Mims. Thank you so much to all of our listeners, supporters, friends, and family that continually allow us to do what we love. If you love our show as much as we love you, please give us a glowing rating and review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to see what we are up to and email us your sinner tales at all the sins of wi at gmail.com. Episodes of All the Sins of Wisconsin are available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't, don't forget, forget, we love you. Love you.